0: Father Luke Klingstead and I are are back in this room that we have made into a makeshift studio. Thank you for returning with us. We are non-professional podcasters who are simply trying to convey what we normally talk about in our own formation into a way that is accessible to you, including to a video format um, that maybe could be more engaging for you. And so we're back, and uh, today is the feast of the conversion of Saint Paul. And something that I mentioned in my homily on Sunday, that may be edifying, is to just simply comment as to why these feasts are important. And the comment, or the 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 thing I encouraged us to think about Sunday was how we keep time. I didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to go into that, but it's really interesting to me how we keep time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I meant by that was, I mean, yes, we do, we do, um, we do measure time based on ultimately an arbitrary metric. Mm-hmm. How many, how long does it take for the Earth to rotate? That's a day. Yeah. How long does it does the Earth go around the Sun? That's a year. Well, our year is different than Mercury, than Jupiter, right. than Neptune, so on and so forth. The same for a day. So that's just how we choose to do it. Um, but I think psychologically, we keep time by past events, milestones, future events. So, you know, we joke about in my house, there is what I call B.C., before children. Yeah. Uh, um, And even more than that, there is B.C., before Cheryl my Mm -hmm. wife. There was a time before, and then there was a a major event that now shapes how I view the world— and time has a different meaning. There is, um, you know, I remember being little, um, a little preteen, looking forward to being 13. Yeah. I thought there was going to be some epistemological change yeah. in me once I was a teenager.
1: Kind of a letdown.
0: Let down completely. And then, um, again, now I can drive. Freedom, 21, that milestone happened. And then the milestones become a bit more um, boring and pedestrian, 25. Insurance goes down. Yeah. I can rent a car. Um, now it's, um, I, I was not joking, I have 12 years till I can retire. That's a new anticipatory yeah. milestone coming up. But, you know, 9-11 right. is how we keep time. We mm-hmm. think about events before and after 9-11. So we do that already. How do Christians keep time? We keep time through the life of our Lord and what it means to live in, in constant meditation of his mm-hmm. life and, and his witnesses, the saints, the church. Again, I said we understand 2023 is a year that has significance because 2023 years since the birth mm-hmm. of Jesus. Um, we keep our year is ordered around the date of Easter, and right. the movable feasts are arranged around that. Of course, we know Christmas, so on and so forth. But we keep these feasts not to, um, you know, have a fantasy about the past. Mm-hmm. But so that these feasts, every time they rotate back around, we actually cycle deeper and deeper, ideally, into what they mean. Mm-hmm. We, we meditate on those events, and then what does that mean for us today? So last week we talked about the con- uh, Confession of St. Paul. So for mm-hmm. us, thank you, I'm sure... Confession, conversion, Peter Paul. Paul, Paul had a confession too, the, con- the confession of St. Peter. And um, what is important for us is for us to answer the same question that he answered, who do you say that I am? And today as we look at the conversion of St. Paul, similar questions. But right. the same thing happens to all the saints. That's what their inspiration does for mm-hmm. us. What can we learn from their life and their faith, and how does that apply to us today? And every time we read Holy Scripture, every time we celebrate these feasts, ideally, it means something deeper for Mm -hmm. us, because ideally, we are now different than we were a year earlier. Just like I said, we were different people before 9-11. We view the world differently, We were different people before we were married or had children or graduated school because now experience has shown us different things. And so our engagement with Mm -hmm. our Lord and the Scripture and the saints takes on a different meaning. So that's why these are so important. And that is why uh, among churchy people like me, like you, we may even date our letters to people. The Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, 2023. We know that's January 25th. But it's a, it's a simple way to remind us there is a different way of keeping time that actually has meaning to it, that um, when, you, when we keep these feasts and these fasts, they, they form us deeper and deeper into Christ, which is our goal. And that only works if Scripture is actually
1: alive, if Correct. it actually is pointing to Jesus Christ, who still is among us. Yep. Um, this is not a, like you said, a commemoration of a past event that happened and is done and you read about it, and at some point you're going to find all the sources and kind of know everything you can know. No, this is something that is living and breathing. You know, Hebrew says sharper than any, any two-edged sword. I mean, it continually cuts us um, and shapes us and molds us. And that is why we spend so much time, you know, doing the same feast every year. And like you said, every year, they mean something different for us. And I think we'll actually see... That Paul is a, a the best example of that, who has something happen to him and he has forever changed, and he does similar things in a different way because he has he has had his eyes opened
0: um, in a way. Yeah, and and um, you know, as traditionally minded people, which I would identify that, and I think you would likely as well, we're not living in the past by these traditions and right. customs. Again, I think from Hebrews, we're living in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Correct. So when we live in Him, we're not rooted to any time. We're rooted in right. Him who transcends all times. So that's why I think that's an important thing to to always mm-hmm. remind people and ourselves. That's why we do it, which is why daily prayer is important and formative. Mm-hmm. That's why the daily Mass is important and formative. And... For those who are members of this parish who, for lots of good reasons, can't attend every day, that's fine. We understand that. We do it on behalf of all. Mm -hmm. We are intercessors at the altar, and we do have a daily congregation that is able to come because of their schedule to join in that intercession. And we include all the people who are uniting themselves to what we do and that alone is a connection right. that helps us go deeper and deeper into this faith. And so even if you can't make it to daily Mass, you can say a prayer today. You can meditate during your day mm-hmm. on the conversion of St. Paul, how dramatic that was, how um, you know transformative it was to the proclamation of the gospel. And as we'll talk about today, how scandalously radical mm-hmm. that was in a way that I don't think we fully appreciate. Right. It's very hard to do so. But
1: Well, before we dive into Scripture, let me let me open us with the, the colleague for today. Let us pray. O God, who by the preaching of thine Apostle Paul has caused the light of the Gospel to shine throughout the world, grant we beseech thee that we, having his wonderful conversion in remembrance, may show forth our thankfulness unto thee for the same by following the holy doctrine which he taught, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So, you're going to talk about Paul in Scripture. You can go a million different ways. Um, And we're going to look at Acts, kind of the historical accounts of of Paul's life. Um, But it's worth pointing out that 13 of the New Testament books, I think it's 13, are attributed to Paul. You know, scholars say seven maybe are are definitely by him and others maybe by his disciples but Paul is in the New Testament everywhere um after the gospels I mean he just is, is his fingerprint is in everything almost
0: yeah let's let us Paul actually um and mention that statement there are 13 letters mm-hmm. of the of the 20 26 26 27 27 27, um, in the New Testament, and you said scholars may agree on 7. Yeah, yeah. For people listening, why would they say 7 and not 13? Yeah,
1: so basically, you know, if if there was a letter from Father Steve and a letter from me, um, there's different stylistic decisions. There's different phrases that you might use compared to me. And if you had the letter side by side, and you knew our writing or our, or even our sermon style, you might be able to say that one's probably by Father Luke. That one was by Father Steve. Now today, it would be a scandal for me to write a letter and say, "Sincerely, Father Steve," and give it to someone. Um, that would be, you know, plagiarism if you're in the academy, and it would be lying if you're just writing a letter. Back then, it was not. It was not viewed that way. Um, it was very common to especially if you were a disciple of someone, to write a letter under their name to kind of show I am trained by them. This is coming from his community almost. Um, and so the idea that, you know, some of these letters say from Paul or from Paul and Timothy maybe weren't actually written by Paul. Um, and, and again, it's all a guess. Um, textual criticism is, is always guessing on what makes the most sense with the data we have. And so you, you get phrases that, Paul doesn't use in in most of his other books, and so scholars will say, "Well, I think somebody else may have added this in. It doesn't mean it's not from Paul or it doesn't agree with Paul's theology. I mean, the church, you know, in establishing the canon, you know, we, we trust that all of this works together, you know, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it may not have actually come from his hand. But then we get other references, um, and I don't remember what letter this is in, where Paul explicitly says, I'm writing, with I'm my writing hand. this with my Look how hand. big my letters yeah. are. Yeah, I'm yeah. um, trying to make it as obvious yeah. as possible. This is from me, actually, me, me. Um, so that's that's kind of what we're saying. It's not to say that the Bible's wrong or it's lying or misleading. It's just different cultural understandings of, of letters. Yeah, and I don't
0: want to get in the weeds on this because I'm not qualified to get in the weeds. But but when you look, if you are reading uh, a scholarly book yeah. on the Bible, you will see there are elements or, or there are schools of, of literary criticism, mm-hmm. textual criticism, historical criticisms. Yeah. And these are all ways of looking at something at the end of the day. They are educated guesses, they are. and there's Absolutely. no way to sort of prove definitively one way or the other. And, you know, my criticism of um, of this textual criticism of looking at the stylistic changes mm-hmm. of Paul. I mean, there are, there are a couple of things that may be helpful. On one hand, when I'm writing um, a text to you, that is different than how it I'm is. composing a letter to the bishop. It is completely as it should be. As it should be. Um, but also, I'm 43, about to be 44. I write differently now than mm-hmm. when I was thirty, and yep. when we look at Paul's letters, we're actually looking at a fairly wide range of years, we are. from the forties to you know to you know, a decade or so later. Um, that being said, one of the ways that we have reminded people in this parish about spoof phishing emails—that's right. Um, when people get a letter, I um, an email f- from me, yes, and it will, it will, it will have a greeting or a salutation that I would never, in a billion right. years, use, right. or the kind of language, and we, we kind of employ exactly, Stephen. or we kind of employ that textual criticism. Does that sound like me? Yeah. If it doesn't sound like me, don't do it. The other thing is, do you know how um, to go into sort of the the writing in the school of Paul or on behalf of Paul? We see this also, Twitter. If you are a major figure, if you're like I know Barack Obama for instance. Yeah. If he wrote the tweet, he would always sign with B.O. B, yep. or whatever. If if he didn't, you know his staff did it. Yeah. Yeah. Did he sign off on it? I'm sure. Yes. You know, the Pope a, tweets it's all a the great time. Comparison. Does anyone think that Francis is sitting there in and Saint Peter's sort yeah. of with his with his iPhone? No, of course I hope not. not. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. So we understand that and we, we, we know you know, the Pope didn't actually yeah, tweet that. Yeah. But it's coming from or the Pope. When you're a kid and you write a letter to the White House, Correct. You're going back. Correct.
1: It came from the White House for all intents and purposes, but it did. You know, when I was a kid, did George Bush yep. actually write me a letter back? Well, no. and,
0: yeah, I, I have I opened uh, when um, President Obama came to Winston, I opened his gathering with a prayer and got this very cool letter, White House stationery, yeah. White House envelope, you know, cl- you know clearly auto pen signature. Mm-hmm. That's a letter from the White oh, yeah. House, you know, and I'll, I'll save that and you know wherever, and let my grandchildren not look at it, you know, <laughs> let them ignore it. But but the point is, we understand that, so Correct. we shouldn't. When we read sort of sensational accounts of these um, textual criticism things, we need to. And, and I was taught New Testament by um, a scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson, mm-hmm. he was a very good scholar, but I forgot that. But really argued for the Pauline authorship of all these letters. Yeah. yeah. Making and he's a, a very well-known scholar. exactly I mean, making the same point is we all know how to I mean we all know how to write in different styles that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean I didn't do it right you know but at any rate the point is we take this as authoritative correct and, yeah at the and end of the day we let correct, it shape us correct
1: yep. so Acts nine is um, the actual you know account um, I don't want to say historical account because that implies that the others aren't historical but Acts nine is the story. Of, of Paul. And then we get, you know, Acts 26, um, Paul recounting his own conversion before King Agrippa. Acts, Acts 22. 22, he does yep. the same thing. So I'll read a couple verses from Acts 9 just to kind of get us all on the same page on, on what actually happened in, in case you forget. So Saul, at this point, who, who will have his name changed to Paul, um, is, as he describes it, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he is has charted his own path, he has risen above the ranks, and he has, has power. Um, and so Acts 9 picks up on, on Saul basically on his way to Damascus. Um, and in other chapters, we get some more details here, like Acts 26. The reason he's going there is to persecute more Christians, is to round up more men and women and bring them back and bring them into the synagogues and terrorize them and ultimately kill them. So that's where we pick up in Acts 9, 1. And it says this, Meanwhile, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest to ask him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, I think we'll come back to that, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? you know, most of us know, is Saul seeing the blinding light and falling to the ground. And I said we'll come back to that idea of um, the way, you know, in in verse 2, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And a couple, I think, interesting points there, that word choice seems specific. And if you have read, especially the Gospel of John before, you should immediately make the connection when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But also there's this um, idea that Paul has kind of charted his own path, his own way in life, lowercase. And he knows what he wants to do. He's you know gotten the power to do it, he has his plan, and he is on this path, on this way of his own desire. And he is looking for people on the way of Christ and you know his conversion long story short um, changes that way for him. I mean he has his own path that he has forged and now he is given a new way. Um, not one that he creates with his own human hands but it's a divine revelation. Um, and so I think for Paul um, in, in his conversion one of the really helpful points pastorally that people can take from this is what do I do with my life, this idea of vocation. Um, so many of us are, are obsessed nowadays with what am I supposed to do with my life, and we're terrified of doing the wrong thing. I mean, that's really underlined is what if I choose the wrong major in college, um, if you're a college kid? What if I choose the wrong job? What if I choose the wrong spouse? I mean, people are, are obsessed about getting it perfect. Um, and what Paul, I think, shows us in, in his conversion is that we, we know we're on the right path when we receive it from Christ. And when we are receptive to it rather than obsessing about our own hands, charting our own path ahead, Paul receives that new way. And, and you know, obviously his is far more dramatic than any of ours will ever be, uh, most likely, um, at least between you and me. But it's a similar idea, that, that, that light illumines our life and shows us a new way, and it's a way that Jesus Christ
0: shows us. Yeah, we're all on some way. Yeah. Paul was on his way to Damascus. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what is helpful, and I think your point is well taken, is that there can be, especially when we're younger and we don't have a few decades of experience to sort of give some perspective, is that, and we see this actually with my children, with the pressure of early on in every Every year, I think this pressure increases. I've got to have my college picked. Yeah. I've got to have my career mm-hmm. and everything else. And and those are those are decisions fifteen year olds can't possibly no. make. And it's unfair. And so then they're anxious. They're depressed. Right. They they break down. Is as long as our life in Christ is to be in Christ, mm-hmm. and it's like following your ways or your GPS in your car. If you make a wrong turn, let I me. Mean, when you make a wrong term, turn, there is our faith, if we remain in Christ, is sort of that line of calculating route. Yeah, yeah, recalculating. And then it's going to bring us back. It will. And so we always, we, we're going, that's what sin is, is that we, uh, harmatia, we're going to go off yep. the path, yep. miss the mark, and then and then we'll come back. And talk about someone who is so far off the mark, and it was a dramatic recalculation to mm-hmm. get him back in the way. There's an old joke that I, I don't remember, so I can't tell it. But there was something about a meditation of people who were not following the way, but they were in the way. Nothing right? Good you yeah, know, yeah. Like like just in the way of the gospel, in the way of, of mm-hmm. living a life instead of being of the way. Yeah. And that is um our own sort of desires to control and manipulate and and to, but you know, but to go back, there's real freedom to say, I think prayerfully this is the right choice. Yeah. If it's not. The world will not stop spinning. No, God's no. not going to fall out of heaven. Yeah, I can recalculate. I changed my major four or five times. So did I. Doesn't matter, you know. But yeah. but and, but even bigger things that aren't even on on majors, right? Which was a big thing when we were in college. Right. But every step of the way, if this isn't right, it's not. That's not the end, right? I mean, my gosh, we just start over. If,
1: if you're powerful enough to change the course of God's plan, then you're God. I mean, that, that's kind of the
0: whole point. you can't change. What God is doing in the world. Well, God's will for us is to come to know Him, right? And God can 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 help us know Him and love Him through our choices mm-hmm. and help bring us to the right choices. But if we if we if we do one thing that doesn't cut us off from God, yeah, there's always a way back. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the parable of of the prodigal, right? Someone who went far out of the way, yeah, but there's that path back home is straight. Mm-hmm. And I actually love, um, and I frankly don't know. Much about this part about the why Luke and Luke Luke is the author of of Correct. the book Acts. If you don't know Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are are two two volumes of one set. Right. But Luke makes the point later in verse eleven, where he's um, talking to um, Ananias. Yeah. Two things about this is that I love the the juxtaposition of when Paul has a vision of the risen Lord. His question is, who are you, Lord? After after the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then um, when Ananias has a vision and the Lord says, Ananias, the answer is, here I am, Lord. That is a response from two different people on two different paths. Mm -hmm. Who are you? Here I yeah. am.
1: And here I am, obviously, makes us think of all the prophets. Yes. I mean, all those. Isaiah, um, you know, know, all these people. stories.
0: Yep. yep, same thing, um, um, Samuel with uh, yeah. hearing the call. But then, verse 11, and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Yeah. And then elsewhere they talk about going straightway. I mean, there are these, again, this is the difference between having a devotional reading and um, biblical scholarship. Right. I don't know um, off the top of my head why... The, the significance of the street straight mm-hmm. but certainly it does help us to think about a path a mm-hmm. way a direction toward the lord
1: yeah and i mean there's uh, you kind of brought up this idea that reading this devotionally um, and that doesn't mean we're not taking it seriously that doesn't mean we're not taking the context seriously it means we're we're trusting that god is going to use this to speak truth yeah. to us i mean here here's one you know quick quick tangent of how you kind of bring the historical context, and the devotional context together. Why Damascus? Well, that's simply where Paul was going, where Saul was going. But there's a lot of, um, this isn't a new city. I mean, this has a long history in the Old Testament. And one of the things that I think is really interesting here is is its actual historical context in the Old Testament. Damascus was, um, uh, Abraham goes there in Genesis 14 to rescue Lot when, when he is captured in a battle. And this is shortly after... Um, God tells him, wherever your feet go, that's the promised land. And so you almost have this idea of well, it was Damascus supposed to be part of the promised land. King David actually says yes and takes it and brings it under Israel control. And then his son Solomon loses it. And it ends up becoming this kind of forgotten land, the outskirts, the edges, you know, kind of the, the border of the promised land. That's mm-hmm. where the, the pagans or the Canaanites are. Um, and so the fact that this. You know, Jewish leader, this Pharisee who persecutes the Christians—that's where his conversion takes place, and his first gospel message is preached to those who have kind of been forgotten about, who who were on the outskirts of the Promised Land. It's kind of why God is using is using Saul in the first place. He is using him to light to lighten Gentiles. I mean, through through um, Saul, through Paul, Jesus Christ actually accomplishes what he came to do, um, and he ends up becoming his hand. So that's one example of. Damascus has this historical context. You can read it historically and ask, you know, what's the importance of that? But then devotionally, it helps you make the connection that, you know, Saul's conversion is is the beginnings of the church spreading to all the
0: lands, yeah. not just Jerusalem. And I don't know that along that. I don't know historically where the gates of the old city of Jerusalem right. were right. during the time of Paul. But I know now um, it's an ancient gate. But when we when we go to the Holy Land with our parish pilgrimage and we stay at St. George's uh, Cathedral, uh, Anglican Cathedral, which is a 15-minute walk tops to the old city, the closest gate that we always enter is the Damascus Gate. Mm-hmm. And why is it called the Damascus Gate? Because if you walk out that gate and go straight... You're going to hit Damascus. So, if if that were there, that gate there during the time of Paul, there was this again straight way, yeah. just walk out and go straight out, um, signifying, you know, he had a mission. Yeah. Now his mission has changed. Right. Completely it's been given and to totally him. Sp- And he's he. What I love about this is there is an element, I think, of, of John three, of Jesus talking to Nicodemus and Nicodemus sort of struggling. What does it mean to be born again? Yeah. And he was being hyper literal about it. However, there is a sense of 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 a of a birth here. Yeah. He falls to the ground, he's helpless, he can't see, yep. his eyes haven't adjusted. Yep. Until um until he has the hands of a of, of someone to lay on him mm-hmm. and he sees and then he's baptized. Yeah. And so that is a sense of being being helpless, being being um vulnerable. Having to be led around and fed and all yeah. that. because remember, he's baptized and then he's fed and then he's given meat yep. and it's like a child now coming yep. and being born again in a, in a beautiful way. I mean, he even
1: falls down and has to kind of learn how to get up That's again. Right. That's um, right. I mean, he really is you know a newborn learning how to do that. And part of the um, theme of this that you just brought up is is the um, importance of light in it. Um, obviously, light has spiritual significance, but um, what I think is is worth you know, noting, and, and this is probably an experience I, I assume we've all had, if you ever seen a movie in the middle of the day, you know, your eyes adjust to that kind of world of its own. You're, you're seeing a movie, that that becomes your reality, and then the movie ends and you walk outside, and, mm-hmm. you know, you can't yeah. see, and, and you're fumbling around trying to find your car, and you, at least if you're me, you got to wait a second yep. to make sure you're safe to drive, but... But that is, you know, uh, a good example that we can relate to of kind of what, what Saul is going through here. Is he, he has been in this dark world, this world of his own making, this kind of movie where, where he controls everything and he has charted his own path. And the light shows him that you don't know everything. Here's an entirely mm-hmm. new existence and reality that you're now made aware of because of the light of Christ. And, and it blinds him. It takes mm-hmm. him a while to adjust. And I think that, that's two things. One, it shows the power of Christ um, to overcome even the most, you know, powerful opposition, but it's also a a nice pastoral move to Saul. I mean, he's going to have this dramatic conversion, and it gives him three days to kind of sit with it before he actually goes out and does anything. Um, He sits with it. He regains his light slowly. He's nourished. He's baptized. That's kind of that that nurturing moment of Saul before he then is sent out to go preach.
0: So in verse 9, And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So what does that look like? You're dead. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, correlation, three days, tomb. Wasn't eating nor drinking nor seeing. He was a dead man until he was born again Mm -hmm. uh, by the laying on of hands of Ananias and was baptized. Clear as day to me, I think. Let's talk about, for a moment, how, um, how radical and scandalous this is. Yeah. So in chapter 8 of Acts, chapter 7, we have the stoning of Stephen. Mm-hmm. Stephen was one of the original um, seven deacons, uh, the deacons that were chosen. And um, we have Stephen's address, who pulls no punches yeah, and that's talking right. to the people. You know, you stiff-necked people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he proclaims Shocker the that gospel. that they stoned him. Yep, exactly. They, they stone him. Stephen, <laughs> radically, um, verse 55 in chapter 7, Chapter uh, verse 58, excuse me. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yeah. And as they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was consenting to his death. So what were they doing And laying their garments uh, at the feet of, uh, of Saul? What do, you th- what do you think they were doing? What do you think that means? Interesting detail. I think it's a... Uh... I mean, I always think of the
1: parallel of laying their their coats down as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Um, it's an honorific thing, you know. You, practically, don't get your feet dirty. Walk on our on our garments over the dusty road. Um,
0: I, you know, I need. I would like to go back and actually read deeper into this. It seems to me almost like I'm gonna take off my coat so I have more more movement in my arms. Oh uh, yeah, that's
1: also true. Yeah, and um, you watch my coat. You, you got to the dirty and, work. And
0: and Saul's like. I got your stuff, boys. I yeah. got it. I'm yeah. the ringleader. I got it. And y'all y'all do it. Um Yeah. Um or and again we're really going off sp- script. Did Saul for a reason choose not to participate? Mm-hmm. I mean it says Saul approved, but he's yep.
1: he's not the one throwing the stone. Um
0: was he like me at the amusement park when I was a teenager and saying at the roller coaster, you know, I'll, I'll hold, I'll hold yeah. your pocketbooks <laughs> in your coats. You all go ahead. I, I'm, you I'm know, good. It makes my stomach upset, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. At any rate, he was complicit in that. Interesting details. It is. But Saul has a backstory and a background. But I think, though, um, probably the right interpretation is that um, he wasn't passive. No. Because yeah. when you look in the beginning of chapter 8, when um, it says, and Saul was consenting to his death, and on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So whether Saul was the ringleader and overseeing it and outsourcing mm-hmm. that, or whether Saul saw that and had a demonic conversion of sorts yeah. and said, this is, this is the right thing, and now he's doing it to other people, I don't know. Um, the point is, he was terrorist number one, yeah. ravaging the church, house after house. And I use that word terrorist not to be dramatic, Terrorizing, no, terrorizing the people, the people yeah. ravaging the people, house after house, and, th- and we see this in chapter eight and in chapter uh, nine, that he is getting women and men, yeah. yeah, and taking them to prison. Or in chapter nine, he's taking them to the um um to the to the chief priests to be bound.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that gets your appropriate designation of, of terrorist um, when you when you see. You know, other um, oppressive regimes in the scriptures or even the exile um, of the Israelites. You know, who do they take if they're actually trying to dismantle these people? They just take the leaders. Um, they take the, the scribes, you know, the, the men who are leading Correct. it. If you're trying to terrorize them, you take everyone. You take whoever you can get your hands on so that nobody feels safe. Nobody feels, um, you know, like, oh, well, okay, he's going to ruin our, our home, home church, but he's not going to take my life. No, he wants, he wants it all. He wants the churches gone, he wants the Christians dead.
0: No right. element left. Yeah. No remnant that might be able to germinate a right. new generation or anything at all. Right. He wants it all gone. Yeah. This is a myopic terrorist vision yeah. to end this movement once and for all. Yeah, and, and the funniest part is every every time
1: he does something like this, it's actually having the opposite effect. Correct. And, and he will come to, you know, obviously rejoice in that um, in spite of himself, but... You know, every house he enters, every person he drags out, um, builds up the church, bolsters it. I mean, the the early church fathers have the quote that the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. Right. Um, every time he, he does this, it's having the opposite effect. So we've got um, Saul, you know, the terrorist, becoming Paul, and um, as we mentioned, and this may be a A good way to kind of transition to just the impact that he has on the church Um, he has his conversion he preaches in Damascus he rejoins the Apostles and then as as most people know he has missionary journeys he it's not good enough for him to just tell one person No, he has you know changed his focus received it from Christ and now he says "I I got to tell everyone I've got to tell every possible person I can get to and he travels far and wide and, and one of the things that always stands out to me, you know, Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, um, to all of the nations, that he is encountering people with all kinds of philosophies. I mean, and, and he'll stand in the in a temple to an unknown God and use whatever, you know, means he can to convince these people that Jesus is, is the Messiah. Then he'll go to this other group and tell them and talk to them. Whatever it takes, his, his focus now is also singular, but it's it's that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Yeah. Um, whatever it takes to convince
0: people of that. I'm gonna pull up a but before you do, I, I just I'm just we were talking earlier and I'm it is impossible for me to fully comprehend how radical it was to have the number one terrorist, mm-hmm. the name that every disciple knew. Yep. You know every disciple knew the name Saul. And they were all there. And they were all there. They were all in Jerusalem. And to have, I mean, just trying to imagine, and the the drama cannot be contained simply in the text, as to how difficult that must have been. And talk about a real challenge to the disciples about how much do we believe this gospel, Mm -hmm. that lives can be transformed. And then what do you do to allow this individual to... Now, lots of time... I mean, it may be that it was two to three years after his conversion before he went to Jerusalem for the first time. Yeah. I mean, this—we're not; these things didn't happen days. But it was
1: short enough to where they said,
0: "The same guy who ravaged us, who persecuted us—I mean, they haven't forgotten it." And it wasn't as if that Paul was in complete harmony with everyone. Yeah, throughout. I mean, there was there was, there was sort of that parting of ways, um, personality issues. Yeah. Um, Certainly, um, the council at Jerusalem, you know, some division going in there about the role of circumcision, what are we doing here? Um, We saw from the epistle this Sunday of writing to the the first letter to the Corinthians, there's some division even among the Corinthians, or people are taking signs and saying that, um, you know, I'm with Apollos or Cephas, Mm -hmm. Paul's not really my guy. and one imagines he struggled with that his entire ministry one of the most heartfelt letters for me is 2nd Timothy where Paul again at the end of his life is listing the people who've left him yeah and one wonders if 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 I mean this is human nature and people we know this in the parish people get hot and cold and leave all the time that's that's just reality but I mean, there are two things to think about here that I think are very difficult for us to fully comprehend. One is how radical it was for Paul. He talks about boldness and and sort of boasting in in the cross of Christ. He was responsible for the death of the first Christian, and now he's starting churches as bold. Mm -hmm. And he's not asking people to, to do this because if his gifts right but because of his own transformation of what he what he not because of his transformation but the grace of Christ that is completely evident in him there can be no greater vessel which is the language that's used or instrument of talking about grace than the one who consented to the death of Stephen yeah oh my gosh at the same time how radical it was for those formally persecuted to receive their persecutor in their midst and then to give him a place of authority. Yeah. He was an apostle. Apostle. One being sent out to establish churches and then to to, to ordain. You ordained Timothy. Right. That is, I think, even more dramatic, perhaps, Mm -hmm. um, because that's not just sort of one person having a change of life. I mean... I said Sunday. I don't know if Peter and Paul, Peter who denied Jesus and Paul who persecuted Jesus, if they were alive today, if we would have the oh, grace to let no. them do anything in the church. We no. don't do that. No. Um, but we'll but let him sit on the back row. Back row, maybe. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, again, I don't want to go on a tangent and open up a can of worms we don't have time to discuss. But this is real, words, real, real world um, issues that we have to deal with. Um, what if you have a registered sex offender coming to church? Correct. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. These are real debates that yeah. church leaders have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how involved do they become? Yeah. Among other things. It's a radical life that we proclaim. It is. It's not one without responsibility or accountability, mm-hmm. but it's a radical gospel. And I think that As we wrestle with our own backstory, our own wandering, our own ways that we have followed that have been wayward, we have to always come back to this radical, extraordinary grace and have maybe Paul as our patron to to continue to teach us this.
1: Yeah. Two quick things. One, and you've brought this up many times before, every Sunday um, we have relics of of the persecutor and the first martyr. We have That's relics right. of Paul and Stephen, Stephen together right on the altar, yep. um, and there's there's you know long-standing discussions, um, devotional you know meditations on Stephen welcoming Paul into heaven. Um, that that image of you know the first martyr open arms, rejoicing that now Paul is in heaven with him. I mean, these are powerful images, and and it's one that we continue to this day that by putting them on the altar together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, I've had, I've had youth, you know, we've talked about what, what's, what's the hardest part about Christianity. And, you know, I always enjoy the, the answers I get, you know, people talking about, well, it's really hard to actually believe this stuff. That's well, a great answer because I think that's one of the most honest answers i found. And then people, you know, kind of go off on tangents. And, and I always say the hardest one for me is to actually believe that every person is worthy of, of grace. Because um, when you take that to its extreme, and and we've had good conversations with with our youth about you know those who have been involved in school shootings. I mean, yeah. the, the shooter with the gun. Do you actually believe he is worthy of forgiveness and grace? That's where that's where the rubber meets the road. That's mm-hmm. where it gets really difficult to say, I'm a Christian. I believe God saved me. Do I believe He can save him, yep. her, the, the people that I think are the most vile, the most horrific, and. You know, you think of um, abstractly, we love that that image. No one is outside of God's grace. Concretely, when you think of the people who have done, you know, damage um, to those that you love, that's hard. Mm-hmm. And and. And pastorally, you know, we have to be sensitive with that. That's not to say that, you know, consequences don't matter and that, that hurt doesn't actually happen. No, it's, it's in spite of the hurt that almost becomes a vehicle for grace. Stephen was hurt by Saul. Stephen was, mm-hmm. was killed by Saul. There was, there was pain that accompanied that. And all the people lamenting over him as they bury him, that was genuine harm. And all of that, and this is the Christian message, somehow is used by God to proclaim hope and grace into the world. That's right. That's I've, hard.
0: I have both buried a murder victim and then had to visit the murderer in jail because they were both parishioners. Yeah. You know, and, and and to imagine that reconciliation and glory is uh, is a powerful thing. I think going back to the point though about forgiveness and and reconciliation, it's impossible, Father, if if it's on me to forgive you. Yeah. That's a great point. It is possible if it's Christ's forgiveness mm-hmm. that I am living into. Yeah. Um, I don't have the power to absolve Correct. that. But Christ has forgiven me, and I'm trusting Christ is working in you. Mm-hmm. And so instead of me giving you a pass, which is yeah. not what we're talking about, right. I'm l- leaning into Christ who's working in you, mm-hmm. and I'm giving it to him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is a way that forgiveness begins to work. And that, I think, is maybe a way to begin thinking about that. Because that, in that same conversation, I'm sure, with youth, it sounds like cheap grace, yeah. is that if, if I do these horrible things for a lifetime, and then at the end, we always hear this yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. this example, deathbed conversion, deathbed conversion you know, are, is this is this like the, the laborer in the vineyard who came in at the 12th hour and got paid as the same yep. as the one who's been there all day long? Well, that's up to God, and that's what, yeah. that's what Jesus says, you yeah. know, this is my money, I'll do what I want to. Yep. But, um, you know, I think that we have to recognize it's Christ who is meeting out justice yeah. that is right and it's it's and, and just give it to him. Trust in him to make all things. Yeah. But we have to also trust that that the only thing that's going to that's going to make a situation better is to allow Christ to use what is absolutely horrible and tragic to bring about some something to his glory, because he's the only one who can. Right. Because we can't. Right. And if we continue to if we continue to allow a horrible event to to destroy us, then now two people have died, yep. as opposed to two people having some sort of rec- resurrection. Doesn't make it easy, right? Don't misunderstand. Don't don't misunderstand. It's not easy. Um, that's that's what trust and, and faith is about. But that's good news. Yeah. Something I always think is funny
1: about the deathbed conversions, the ones that actually happen, is they're never happy. They waited to the end of their life. No, of course not. They're never. They're never saying, "Well, I got to have my fun. Now I'm glad I." I'm making the right choice. No, they're always lamenting it, and they're sad that they did not do it yeah. sooner.
0: But, you know, the people who speak to me and they say, ah, you know, I, I want to come back, but I've. if you only knew what I've done, I'm yeah. like, oh, come on, read the Bible. I yeah. mean, I'm, not, I'm not being flippant. I mean, I, I, I understand yeah. that grief, but let's look at Paul. Look what he did. Yeah. Not only was he welcomed into the congregation, he started them. Yeah and if you look at and acts led 9 them and encourage them you know i mean look at i mean verse 9 in chapter 9 i'm sorry chapter 9 verse 19 for several days he was in the disci- with the disciples at damascus and in the synagogues immediately yeah he proclaimed jesus saying he is the son of god and all who heard him were amazed and said is not this the man who made havoc in jerusalem of those who called on his name he has come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now a couple of things. Now was he was going to the synagogues. Yeah. maybe there were some Jesus followers there, yeah. but maybe he was smart enough to say, let me start with. Yeah, we'll start, know, start with the one he, too. Yeah, like me, exactly. How did he prove that Jesus was the Christ? Um, I submit he proved Jesus was the Christ by his own transformed life. Yeah. That was the yeah. proof. Here is a man who was once um, binding them and bringing them before the chief priests, and now he's calling on his name yeah. himself. So the best evangelism is a transformed life. It is the yeah. best evangelism. The best proclamation of a gospel as is, is the grace of Christ shining through our lives. Which is, again, friends, is why this trope that we have to live perfect lives is is inaccurate. N- not that we shouldn't strive for virtue and holiness, yeah. but the idea that we are, are um, inadequate vessels because we're, we're sinners is missing the point. Right. We are vessels because we are sinners, sinners redeemed by His grace, which is the complete point of all of His 13 letters. Right. Yeah, and, and we read verses like, be
1: perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. It kind of catches, catches us off guard sometimes, but I think the best way to understand that is this constant theme throughout all of the Scriptures is what are you loyal to? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is really what we are being called to, not to make no mistakes, but to continuously be loyal. Um, and, and Paul, you know, after his conversion, it's not like he doesn't ever sin again. I mean, no doubt he's, he sins and makes mistakes, but now his... His focus, his determination is, is fixed. His loyalty is fixed on on Jesus Christ rather than himself. Mm-hmm. And that's that perfection. That is that guiding principle that, that sets him on the path, that sets him on the way, that Fidelity, um, that faithfulness, that is the perfection that we strive for. And
0: speaking of being fixed, the the one we, we mentioned last week that I know enough Greek in seminary to identify yeah. the fraternities, I do remember this, you know, doulos Christa, I think is the Greek phrase. Paul calls himself doulos Christal, slave of Christ, yeah. a slave, right. chained both in prison, but I'm chained to Jesus in a way that is liberating, not against his will. Yeah. And so that focus, that that's... It's odd to use words like slavery, but the idea that I am his servant, willingly and joyfully. And it's him who lives in me, and he is my identity. And when I look in the mirror, I see Jesus Christ, not because I'm good like him, because he lives in me. Absolutely.
1: I'm going to throw up a Caravaggio painting um, for those who are watching. My favorite painter. And uh, I learned that this was actually his, he was commissioned to paint um, The Conversion, and this was his second attempt. His first one is much less uh, Carvaggio-y, um, mm-hmm. and it was rejected. And then he, he comes back and does this. And, you know, it's, it's classic caravaggio the darkness, the light. But one of the things that always stands out to me is um, his arms, um, kind of embracing the light at the same time as it is knocking him off of his horse. And, you know, numerous people have kind of commented on that, that he is, he is arms wide open, receiving Christ, at the same time being kind of pushed back and knocked off of his feet. And that kind of gets to the themes that we talked about of of new birth, um, of receiving something that is so powerful enough to, to change you that it actually does affect you.
0: At the same time, it is, it is remaking you into something new. Yeah, I love Caravaggio. Caravaggio um, famously used models for his paintings. He didn't paint from his um, sort of mind's eye. Hmm. He had to have... Something to, to see to yeah. do. Caravaggio also is is maybe the perfect person to do this because he he also killed someone. And That's I th- right. And I think um, there's a great book on, on Car- Caravaggio, and the subtitle is "A Life Sacred and Profane." And I think he killed someone like over a tennis match. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. Caravaggio was 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 always had the patronage of. Um, and protection of, of wealthy patrons yep. and church officials. I think this is painted for either a pope or yeah. another wealthy official. And so official. He, would, he would walk around with his sword and was a bit bold in that and had a quick mouth yeah. and got himself into trouble. And so he actually fled to Malta and joined the Knights of Malta because okay. that, that gave him immunity. Yeah. But he lasted a year in, in, that, in that life. But someone who, I mean, Caravaggio, I mean... Again, in that time, these artists, as we said, were, were theologians in their own right, but they were saturated with the teaching and imagery of the church, but surely he also wrestled with it, and surely he had moments of an experience of this grace who knew the darkness, and that's the one of the hallmarks of Caravaggio is this amazing play of darkness and light and how the whole, the whole scene is completely black except the light coming onto him, which now illuminates the horse and, and the other person who is looking at Saul and Saul's looking up but can't see um, yeah. and the other men also hear the voice but they can't see right you know we've got about
1: you know eight ish minutes left to try to keep this under under an hour um, and I think it's worth just making a brief comment on um, the effect of Paul in the New Testament and then just kind of close out by talking about you know maybe personal anecdotes of, of our conversion so, a quick note that we we had this discussion earlier. A lot of Paul's writing in the New Testament um, is bold, and and sometimes people want to um, drive a wedge in between Paul and Jesus, you know, um, mm. which is ironically what what Paul critiques the Corinthians for doing yeah. is, is aligning themselves with something else. But I think I think the best way to to help understand where Paul is coming from is is always to keep two things in mind. One. Paul has a singular focus, and it's convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, and everything else is secondary. And so we read genuinely, you know, hard passages, um, like when he says, slaves be subject to your masters. And and we can actually use Paul to help understand what, what, what does he actually believe, because we have other verses where he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor master. It's not as if he thinks there's uh, a genuine reason for slavery to exist. What he does think, though, is I don't care about the you know, I care less about the, the reality here and now because we have something better to focus on. Slaves, masters, all of y'all look to Jesus Christ. And so, you know, we read those passages, we read, you know, other, other passages that I think people pause and think, Paul's not the nicest guy. Um, Paul's not the most, you know, kind, sweet-talking, you know, man of God. Um, and our gut reaction is to either throw him out and say, well, I don't, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm going to ignore it. Or to say, well, Paul doesn't quite understand Jesus yet. He's working through these issues, and he's not as authoritative as some of the rest of the Bible. And we have, you know, famous figures from church history doing that. And I think that's, that's unhelpful because that, that demonstrates a lack of trust in the church to, you know, preserve the, the scriptures. But, again, to put Paul in his own context, um, to remember that, that Paul was, you know, singularly focused on Jesus Christ, on, on quote, getting people to heaven, and, and the stuff here and now was, was secondary focus. Not that he thinks slavery has a right to exist. I mean, he makes that clear when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There, there are no differences anymore. There's no male nor female. None of these distinctions matter because we find our identity in Jesus Christ. And then we read the slaves be subject to your masters. And, and the helpful way to interpret that is, is to have these hard conversations, to wrestle with it. At the same time, you're not going to slip into saying Paul thinks slavery is good. Or you're not going to say, you know, Paul doesn't matter. We should throw him out. Um, there's a, a tension there that you walk through, and that you trust that God will lead you through, and you and you, you know, can still do that faithfully.
0: Yes, and I think that. I mean, again, that's a whole. We're not in any position to speak really intelligently on the, and I don't want to get into the nuances of chattel slavery versus right, Roman slavery right, right, and right. all that. I think, though, another way to look at because, but those are differences. Right. And it's a different context, and um, I mean, not saying that Paul endorses either version. Right. Yeah. I think that Paul. Everything about Paul, as I read him, is all pastoral. It, absolutely, and it's all about the individual. And this is whatever it takes to convince you and, that you Jesus know, is the Messiah. Here is here is a real world example that may may or may not be helpful. And this is not a criticism at all on either church. But you know, for instance, we live. For those who might be listening who don't live in Winston Salem, Winston Salem is one of the two Moravian centers in the world. Yeah, yeah. It, it may be um, it may be the number one Moravian center. There are a lot of Moravian Christians in Winston Salem. And the Episcopal Church and the Moravian Church are um, in full communion with one another. I have never known of any joint Episcopal-Moravian venture, uh, at least one that went well. You know know I mean? So my point is, there was a a macro level where Mm -hmm. we said we're all together, but on the local level, it's not that we're opposed, but no one would know that we have full communion on the ground. And I think that, like, um, if you look at the cases of um, Onesimus and Philemon. Yeah. Ordaining is, a slave. Paul is not trying. Paul isn't. It's not that he didn't care. He wasn't focused on the institution of slavery. Correct. He was focused on that pastoral relationship and, and, and the salvation of Philemon, mm-hmm. of doing the right thing but also of Onesimus, the slave. And so I think for Paul, everything is pastoral because you can say things on a, on a larger level and not care about the people on right. the ground. Right. I'm sure Paul cared about both, but the most immediate effect was the people yeah. involved. Um, and, and I think that when we read that, he's not making policy statements. Correct. He's, he's addressing people pastorally in their um, in their walk in the Lord. Yeah. And we have to have some some grace with ourselves. If I'm dealing with you pastorally, I may give you some guidance that if you were to read it out of context and out of your state of life, may seem a bit strange, yeah. but in that moment made the perfect sense. And it might be the thing that finally makes it exactly, click for me. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So Yeah, one of the one of the best things about Paul is that most of his writings are are Straightforward. They're letters, um, and we can easily map that onto our life. One of the hardest things about Paul is that they're letters they're to specific one-sided. communities, yep. and, and we don't have the the, the conversation. And so we, we see Paul, we see how relatable his writings are because they're letters. We get yep. that, and then we also get mad sometimes or get frustrated when those letters don't make sense to us because yep. we don't have you know all of the context. But but the, I think the the overarching you know point to make is is you know, what we say um, in our catechism, that the scriptures contain all things necessary to Correct. salvation. Um, what we read in Paul is necessary for salvation. Is it necessary for charting a new community that, you know, has the politics best suited to Christianity? No, that's not what he's trying to do. He's writing letters to convince people of salvation. I mean, that is his, that is his
0: focus. Transform life in the grace of Christ. Yeah. That's his focus. any Any concluding thoughts we've covered a lot of
1: ground. Um, we've touched on some things that we could spend entire episodes on um, but paul is is such a pivotal figure, and his conversion is so dramatic that um, you know we've we've barely scratched the surface on some of this.
0: The final thing I would say is we do not need to set the expectation that our transformation has to be um, scales falling from yeah, the eyes at yeah. one point, lightning from death heaven, for three days, falling off our horse. That is the exception and not the rule. I think um, most of us have a gradual unveiling of truth where we are where we begin to um, instead of having scales fall from our eyes it's more like waking up in the morning and our eyes begin to focus yeah and we begin to see or we go to the optometrist and then you know number one number two number number whatever we begin to see it better that is my my journey toward clarity yeah. as opposed to having that dramatic scales falling. And if you're, if you're wondering, if you have lack of confidence in your relationship with Jesus, recognize that does happen, yeah. but it's not the expectation every time. And it's not the norm. Not the norm. But then you can look back in perspective uh, with a different perspective and see how there were some events that were maybe more dramatic than you realized. Mm-hmm at that time, mm-hmm. but now you're able to look back with the eyes of, of, of faith and see how that worked together. Absolutely. Conversion that is an example for all of us and a source
1: of encouragement and, and challenge for all of us.
0: And speaking of that, we won't do it today, but we had a, a listener named Jason who is from Clinton, North Carolina, um, suggested that we talk about our own journey into the Episcopal Church yep. as we were both um, were raised in other traditions. Right. And he um, and also asked about... Um, the precision of our liturgies and yeah. why we do the things that we do, which, um, Jason, we will absolutely do, yeah. um, so stay tuned for a future episode on that.
1: Yeah, and as we get more tech-savvy, we can even probably have yep. both of our videos and the Mass yep. in front of us and, and make some commentary, so we, we look forward to doing that. Well, let us close in prayer. Our Father, who, who art, art in, in heaven, heaven, hallowed be, be thy, name, thy name. Thy kingdom come, come thy, thy will, will be done, done on earth as it is in heaven. heaven. Give us, Give us this, this day our bread, daily bread, and, and forgive us our trespasses, trespasses, as we, we forgive those who trespass against us. And, and lead us, us not into temptation, temptation, but to deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
0: The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.